Welcome to the podcast series on memory politics. I'm Olga Kuzmina, and I'm pleased to have you join us for the third and final episode, which focuses on memory politics and society. We'll be discussing the societal relevance of memory politics and the ways in which various social actors shape the debate about memory. We will also delve into a particular case study on the memory of Stalinism and Stalin in Russia and Georgia. Then we dice into methodological discussions before concluding the series. The conference organizers will provide a reflection on their experiences at the end. Just like in previous episodes, we began by asking participants how they entered this field of research. These scholars came to memory studies from regional work in places like Russia, Georgia, and the Balkans, where they felt that memory played a major role in shaping local societies. Our first speaker is Ted Gerber, a professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He researched memory politics in Russia using surveys, something not typically done in the field. So I actually came to this particular topic uh, by way of a collaboration uh, that lasted quite a number of years with um, a colleague named Sarah Mendelson. And uh, way back in, I guess, uh, we started working together in early 2000s, 2001, we did our first survey together. And Sarah's a political scientist, and she was very interested in human rights issues. And so we started out together, we met at a conference um, where it, which she made a bunch of statements in her presentation about how Russians feel about human rights. And I pushed her after and I said, you know, you made all these statements, but what are your, what's your empirical evidence for that? She said, well, I just, you know, I talked to people and I said, well, wouldn't it be interesting to actually do some surveys on this issue? So that launched a series of um, surveys that we did together, uh, first focusing on human rights, political views. Then covering such issues as uh, uh, attitudes towards police abuse, uh, we did focus groups, and then so part of that project uh, turned into uh, this this particular survey that we did of memory. Priska Daffy is interested in social movements in Europe, which she studies as the head of the research group on conflict and social movements at the Peace Research Institute, Frankfurt. So what I'm interested in is um, the role that, um, next to other things, but um, and this is uh, the most topical here right now, um, what I'm interested in is the, are the, the role that memories and narratives play in social movements. Um, and you can imagine different dimensions of this. You can imagine, um, there, of course, there's memories. There's a lot of mobilization about memories where activists um, challenge existing uh, versions of the past. And this is one uh, important uh, dimension of this interaction that I'm also interested in. And then there's, of course, also the fact that memories uh, as a practice, as a, as a kind of ritual, play an important role within movements themselves. Our third speaker is Peter Kabachnik, Associate Professor of Geography in the Department of Political Science and Global Affairs at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. His interest in memory studies was sparked by a visit to Georgia, where the recent removal of a Stalin monument in the leader's hometown led to an outcry among the locals. I actually backed into the field um, in the sense that I, I started working in Georgia as a postdoctoral research associate for the Center of European Studies at Rutgers University uh, back in 2007, and the project uh, was looking at uh, Georgian internally displaced persons. So I was looking at uh, social networks, livelihood strategies, changes to identity uh, of IDPs in Georgia. So I started traveling to Georgia. And over the years uh, of continuing to go to Georgia, uh, as Georgia is Stalin's 
home, homeland, uh, and you would go, I would go to Gori, uh, which is Stalin's hometown, which had a uh, giant Stalin statue in the main square, as well as a Stalin museum that was fairly uh, celebratory of the Soviet dictator. Uh, I became uh, very interested in that, and I would talk to my Georgian friends and colleagues about it. And over the years, I kept a, a kind of accruing uh, information, and it became very fascinating to me. And then I realized, why not, uh, when that project was kind of ending, why not stay in Georgia? Finally, Leah David is a Marie Curie Research Fellow in the School of Sociology at University College Dublin. Originally from Serbia, she has a personal experience that started her interest in the field. I think just as any other research, all started with an anecdote. Uh, I remember one day I was sitting with my uh, partner and he asked me, being myself from Serbia, he asked me, uh, when do you uh, commemorate uh, those wars of the 90s, you as Serbs? And he asked that because we, uh, we were living at that time in Israel and in Israel, of course, everything is about commemorations. So he said, what do you mean? What, what wars? He said, wars of the night. He said, I don't think anyone commemorates it. He said, that is not possible. There was a war. You need to commemorate it. So I asked my uh, family, my friends, and they said, no, there is no such a thing. So he said, okay, this is weird. So actually, this, this was my small hole, how I got into the, uh, so to say, memory studies. And from there... Uh, from uh, doing uh, research uh, for my PhD on uh, uh, an attempt to build a monument for the wars of the 90s in, in Belgrade, in Serbia. Uh, next, uh, I continued uh, with the comparative uh, research on Serbia and uh, Croatia. And after that, I added uh, uh, Bosnia to it. Uh, and after that, finally, now I'm doing also Israel and Palestine in much broader sense of uh, memory politics. Sometimes the subject of memory politics can seem like an abstract and somewhat elite discussion. So we asked our speakers how memory politics matter to the average person. Peter Kabachnik refers to his personal research on the memory of Stalin in Russia and Georgia. Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Um, uh, the symbolic politics of memory is relevant for um, for an everyday Georgian or an everyday Russian. Um, first, uh, instrumentalized politics, uh, elites, uh, government officials um, uh, will circulate certain discourses and narratives uh, within media, within education, uh, political speeches that may uh, use certain events, certain figures about the past uh, in certain ways to, uh, to foment, foment discord, to, um, uh, to gain um, support for certain policies, to distract attention away from uh, certain events. So it's always important to, um, to kind of be tuned in to memory politics and how it can be used uh, um, kind of from the top down. But it's also important in terms of uh, the everyday lives of people. Uh, while I, would, I wouldn't say this is relevant for everyone, but there's definitely a, a segment of the population, both kind of, uh, kind of at the, on, the, on the edges for the, those who are very vehemently opposed to Stalin uh, uh, and, and then those who are, uh, um, who are much more likely to praise Stalin. For them, there's a much more um, 
personal connection to these to these debates and uh and, and as well as emotional re- resonance with these debates so um for those who might have lost uh um uh family members or who are uh um very anti authoritarianism or anti the dictatorship um these are going to be um, not just um, abstract arguments, but these are going to be personal concerns. For Leah David, the question of relevance is not so much connected to an interest in academic research, but to the question of why people should care about memory at all. For example, if we're talking about, let's say, Poland and some village where uh, 60 years ago uh, Jews were lived and today they are not there, and today you cannot find even a plague uh, commemorating those Jews. The question is not why there is no that plague, but why there should be that plague. Because, you know, this is new generation. People live there and they're not living. I mean, the whole uh, questions about memory should be, I think, um, asked completely from a different direction. So, as you understand, the discussion with me (laughs) comes from the opposite uh, direction. And and to be honest, uh, I mean, this uh, uh, whole narrative about memory politics is so, again, so very much uh, uh, soaked into um, and strangled into so many different uh, uh, directions that it doesn't seem it is adding much as a solution to something if we are supposed to give some solution. According to David, the term memory politics is used to refer to many different phenomena at once, which tends to blur the concept. Through that, she says, we're missing the most essential developments, like the fact that modern states have begun to use memory as a commodity. But the question is, why does it happening now? Why does it matter at all? How come, you know, memory is not new in any way, shape or form? But I think that we are missing a point, and the point is that today we are witnessing something that is novel in that sense. And what is novel that memory became a resource, resource that can be traded. It is, uh, it is just like that. It became something that we can use as a, uh, as a currency to trade for other things. And what do I mean by that? I mean by that that governments find it easier to adjust their memory politics uh, to the needs of international community, for example, uh, to get in exchange something else. Leah David tries to advance the field through a conceptual move. The term she puts forward is memorialization isomorphism. We asked her to explain what that actually means. Because obviously we have this what is uh, being called kind of, uh, uh, you can use it, uh, multidirectional memory or cosmopolitan memory or kind of a globalization of memory. So I took all that to understand it again from a different perspective trying to understand how we ended up uh, having this, what I call the uh, memorization isomorphism, uh, um, toolbox of different practices that became prevalent in all different geographical spaces. So if we talk about uh, uh, North America, or we talk about Europe, or we talk about uh, Far Asia, we can see the same instruments being in place. So it is obviously about some kind of globalization and some kind of isomorphism where different states or different organizations copy and take and do replicas or all uh, certain uh, practices 
to promote certain agenda. So that agenda is actually human rights agenda. Uh, and human rights agenda and those practices can be uh, di differentiated from practices, uh, for example, of nationalist agenda, because they have three main principles. One is uh, that we all need to face the past. Second is that there is this obligation, kind of duty to remember. A third is that it has to be the memory itself has to be victim-centered. So this is also uh, very important because all those three uh, principles are deeply rooted into particular historical events and we can actually trace how they developed over time and across different uh, geographical regions. In previous episodes of this podcast, we focused on top-down processes of memory politics. For instance, in the first episode, we talked about how government action and laws shape the way we remember. Priska Daffy, however, takes a different stand. She focuses on bottom-up processes and explains how they influence memory politics. In general, you could say that, um, of course, institutions play an important role. Um, that's the kind of uh, top-down perspective in shaping certain discourses, including discourses about the past. But as, um, as in other um, respects in memory, too, um, the civil society plays an important role here. And this is something that often I feel um, um, that is neglected, also neglected if you look at existing studies on European memory building. Um, so what I try to also put forward with this paper is that it's, it's uh, important to look more at this kind of uh, bottom-up uh, identity, uh, bottom-up, sorry, uh, memory uh, building um, because the dynamics can work differently, these memories can clash, and they do clash with official um, versions of the past. And it's important also um, to consider that uh, they may influence the the main uh, the, the mainstream or the institutional uh, versions of of the past uh, in certain respects. This is not always something that may that is. Uh, very rapid change in many cases, but uh, this is something that um, um, still is going on and requires a bit more scrutiny. One instructive case about the relevance of society and memory politics is the memory of Stalin and Stalinism in Russia. Ted Gerber included this topic in his public opinion survey in the country and discovered previously unknown mechanisms of memory politics at work. We asked a lot of questions on the surveys about you know, views of Stalin, about views of the, the awareness of the repressions of the 1930s and, and accuracy of knowledge about them. Uh, we also asked uh, questions about uh, whether or not people had family ties with victims of the repressions, uh, which proves to be a very important predictor of how people understand uh, the Soviet past, how they understand particularly the Stalin era. So it's predictive of whether or not people had heard of the repressions um, and you know most people had maybe twelve percent of the sample had, but you know everybody who had the personal connection uh, had heard of the repressions. Uh, it predicts whether or not people accurately estimate the scale of the repression. Gerber's findings are an important development in the field. Till now, if you talked about memory, you either meant individual or collective memory. The space between those two extremes was largely abandoned. Gerber fills the gap by adding the family as an important intermediary unit of analysis that shapes the way people remember. 
Elsewhere, Peter Kabachnik researched on the memorialization of Stalin in Russia and Georgia. He found that these two societies produced a very different memory culture. There, there are commonalities uh, between the two countries, and there's certainly uh, diverse uh, understandings of Stalin. But if we had to crystallize uh, two uh, two different uh, visions of Stalin uh, for Georgia and Russia, for Georgia it would be uh, he is uh, the focus is more on his Georgianness that he is an ethnic or national Georgian. He's one of us. He's the local boy made good. Uh, who comes from a small town of Gori and ends up ruling half the world. So it's, it, it, it becomes a source of national pride. Uh, again, not for everybody, but for, for some, it's, it's definitely a, a discourse that, that is, um, uh, uh, somewhat pervasive. And this is in stark contrast to Russia, where the emphasis on his Georgianness is completely absent, and he just becomes uh, another uh, strong leader of the Soviet Empire, and um, uh, the association is more with power and strength and uh, geopolitical prestige. Methods remained an intensively discussed issue at the conference. Different scholars from various disciplines came together and exchanged their thoughts on which methods to use and which to discard. Ted Gerber makes the case for surveys. He says they're mostly neglected in the field, but would offer a significant merit. Using surveys, you know, is far from a it's far from a panacea. It's far from I would never suggest it's the only approach you should be used, but I think it can serve as a valuable complement to uh, these other forms of data that you encounter more frequently in the memory uh, research literature, the collective memory literature, because uh, we don't really know, you know, that all those other sources could give us a non-representative sense of what people actually perceive, how, you know, I mean, just because, you know, governments erect statues to try to promote a certain view of history, and just because, you know, some protesters might show up from time to time, or some people might, you know, in, in websites write screeds about either for or against this or that conception of history. Uh, that doesn't give us a sense of what the general population thinks about. And that's what surveys are uniquely good at, like really giving a, a broad uh, perspective, a, a re more representative sense of how the population falls into a distribution of views about some historical topic. Other scholars are more skeptical. Peter Kabachnik points out the limitations of surveys. In terms of limitations, uh, when we're doing uh, quantitative uh, surveys, there's always limitations in, in, in the sense of um, not being able to go a little bit deeper uh, uh, into the questions and, and really getting at the underlying meaning uh, behind some of those uh, some of those answers. Um, you can you can have two different people answer the same way. Uh, one can feel really strongly about it, and one cannot. And and that's always uh, one of the issues you have to deal with when you're doing using survey data. In the end, most scholars agree that it's best to combine various methods to enhance one's understanding of a given issue. This is called triangulation. Priska Daffy tells us how she applies it in her own research. For this project in particular, I did narrative interviews with activists. I did focus groups to study kind of the more interactive dimension of it too. Um, and what I also did is corroborate these um, these kind of interview-based, uh, interaction-based uh, narratives with narratives that are put forth in documents um, that activists have um, 
published. Um, and here I am talking about newsletters, uh, call for actions, and all of these kind of documents. You can also find certain elements of a narrative, or not always, but often can find a narrative about the past um, that, for example, justifies why um, you need a uh, um, protest on a certain issue. In this podcast series, we've talked a lot about narratives, but how do you actually extract and understand a narrative? Priska Daffy asks exactly this question when she analyzes one of her own research interviews. What I was interested in is um, shared narrative patterns, and that, of course, requires you to go a bit deeper into narrative structures and how um, how activists um, uh, build up uh, their stories. And um, actually, one of the things I'm calling for in the paper I presented, but also in the book I published on this, uh, on it's called Becoming a Movement, um, where I also argue that it's important to study these um, kind of the, the structural elements or the way that um, move, that narratives are built up. Um, and how do you do this? You have to kind of dissect the different uh, parts of a narrative, what follows upon which, how are kind of narrative links made. And this is something I think where also memory studies can profit from, from a, um, from a more detailed uh, analysis of actually how do these um, um, how do narrative narratives work? Um, um, how is a story told, in fact? And um, how do we get at a, at a certain message or a certain morale of the of a narrative of a story? How does it work? Um, and uh, I think there's a, a lot to discover here. Throughout this podcast, we asked a dozen experts about their work and insights into memory politics. To conclude the series, Felix Kravatsek and George Soroka, the organizers of the conference, share their thoughts on lessons learned, challenges, and future prospects for the field. First, we asked George what went well at the event. The diversity was a key strength of this particular conference. We're, we're all looking at the same issue, but we're all looking at different aspects of the issue, or we're choosing to emphasize not only particular questions within this broader complex of behavior, within this broader paradigm of memory politics or bringing the past into the present as we've characterized it, um, but having the synergies that come out of bringing together people from different disciplinary backgrounds working on the same issue. For myself, at least, I found this very revealing and it uh, indicated some interesting and promising new directions of research. I'm not as uh, sanguine that interdisciplinarity is, is truly possible, but I think cross-disciplinary fertilization most certainly is, and that's important to keep in mind. Uh, our goal was not to convert the literary scholar into the political scientist or vice versa, but it was to say that we may have compelling, interesting things to say to one another, and that it's worth having that conversation, and it's worth, more importantly, listening to one another about these issues. But the debates at the conference also underlined the remaining differences and approaches in the field, as pointed out by Felix. And people come to this from, from very different disciplines, so it's not necessarily easy kind of, to have a dialogue between lawyers, sociologists, political scientists, and historians. Um, and there are different questions and different assumptions in these fields, but what it showed me during the one and a half days is how interlinked these processes are. I mean, the the way law determines how societies can recall the past is of fundamental political relevance, and it's of relevance for social movements, because it creates the conditions under which these can act, it sets the boundaries. And, and I think these interactions between the realms is really an important aspect to explore, to explore further, 
despite the fact that obviously by inclination each discipline has its preferred sources um, and will therefore not necessarily consider, for instance, do legal documents the same way as a lawyer would, they would not be looked at the same way by a political scientist. Questions of methodology in particular were in dispute. Felix sketches out the dividing lines and tells us how to fertilize methodological pluralisms in a productive way. So one key disagreement that doesn't necessarily come as a surprise to anyone listening to this um, is still the fundamental divide in terms of explanatory ambitions between social scientists and humanists. So people coming to this from from history, they will very often be driven by a case interest, and they won't understand a particular, you know, the memory of a particular event or the mnemonic structures in a particular country better. Whereas the social scientific perspective to this would obviously be to learn something potentially generalizable, something to go beyond the case that we can not necessarily even derive a formal model, but to derive a pattern that we observe that has relevance beyond the unique case. And I think that's a fairly deep divide in terms of these explanatory ambitions um, because it determines how how you approach your cases um, and the depths that you need um, and also how you write how you write your research. I see a lot more convergence in terms of methods because the humanity people increasingly are also interested in using computational methods, for instance. And that's something which but even true if it started in the social sciences more than in the humanities. But I see that, for instance, being an, an interesting point of convergence. And in the methods showcases that we had, I mean, there was one on, on text analysis or geographical visualization. And these are methods that cut across disciplines. People from literature would look at text analysis to understand features of speech, for instance, um, or of novels um, that contain kind of mnemonic structures. They would look at it also more and more structurally to understand differences between speakers. Um, and we as social scientists would use the exact same text analysis methods to, to scale text, to discover latent topics, to discover meaning differences between speakers. So I think in terms of the methods, there's actually a very interesting overlap between the fields. And that I can see develop in the future into an interesting dialogue without the ambition to dissolve disciplinary boundaries. I mean, I think it's still good that we thrive for something different in our research. But there are methodologically innovative research projects which leave behind the old entrenched debates and competing camps. George mentions one project on Imperial Russia. One of the most impressive recent uh, GIS projects that we've seen is a project called the Imperia Map Project, which maps imperial Russia, uh, maps the imperial Russian economy, maps imperial Russian travel routes, maps uh, dynastic marriages. Uh, It's difficult to explain the full scope of this project because it's so extensive. What is interesting is that this project was put together not by a political scientist, nor by an economist, but by a historian at Harvard, Kelly O'Neill. Last but not least, we asked Felix and George for their outlooks and concerns for the field. I'm very hopeful for the field. I I think the field is growing. I think it's burgeoning. I think we see this uh, particularly with more social scientists becoming interested in this question of how the past acts in the present. Uh, We see this with the more rigorous methodological and empirical approaches that are being applied to this question. We asked Felix what it takes to overcome existing problems in the field. 
According to him, scholars still tend to stick to their original field, but would profit from engaging with the work of other disciplines on memory politics. To succeed, I think what it still needs is also from the side of the social scientist a much more fine-grained engagement with the great work that humanists have been doing over the last twenty years. And there's so much scholarship in. On the side of historians and literature scholars, that is not really received in the social sciences, and I think this dialogue, I wish to see more of that, kind of to not reproduce uh, mistakes that maybe were done in the 1980s in this field, and I'm only dropping methodological nationalism here, but which people from history and literature have been kind of challenging for a long time now, and I think this cross-disciplinary dialogue, in particular on concepts, is really important to gain a Better way of framing the terms that we are using, and thereby, therefore, also the ways we operationalize the concepts that we are interested in. And that's it. Thank you for listening to our three-part podcast on memory politics. I hope the series has fueled your curiosity and desire to engage more with research on the field. If you like the podcast, let your friends and colleagues know by sharing it or writing a review. My name is Olga Kuzmina, and I wish you all the best. Music